0: From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. On the cover of Ileana Maisonet's book, we see her mother's hands up close, balancing a teetering stack of coconut arepas, stuffed with octopus and dripping with sauce those hands, with their painted fingernails, gold rings, and silver bangles, tell a story. And even though there are 5.5 million people living in the continental U.S. who count Puerto Rico as their ancestral home, we rarely see their stories in cookbooks and on TV. In her cookbook, Diasporican, Iliana aims to change that. But we can't talk about Puerto Rico without diving into the legacy of past and present colonization of the islands and the impact on the food system. I asked Eliana what the impediments are for the island when it comes to creating their own robust local food system.
1: I think it's the dependency on imported foods. There are very few people who remember what an agrarian society was you know before especially the generation now who grew up you know like in the 80s and the 90s who are totally used to you know like industrialized and convenient food stuffs food products and things like that and fast food which is there's a ton of fast food all over the island you know like literally in the middle of a jungle there will be like a shopping plaza just built with like a walmart and a ton of fast food places and because of the dependency on between 80 and 90 percent of imported foodstuffs, you have to work with what you're given. And a supermarket is like a big thing now, Walmart is a big thing now, there, Costco is a big thing there. So they're literally just kind of like looking to see, you know, what is available. And on top of that, you also have to take in consideration natural disasters, which, you know, before Maria. There was actually, you know, a pretty good renaissance that was happening there with a lot of people doing like small farms and urban farming and chefs that were buying, you know, locally sourced things like that. But as soon as Maria came, it, they had to start over all over from scratch. So let's
0: talk a bit about the food. Give us a bit of, of a history of people who came to the island and what they brought with them.
1: So from what we've always known, what I've always known, is that the Taino were the inhabitants of the island of Borinquen, right? Which is why Puerto Ricans are called Boricua. However, now some studies are showing that there might have been another group of people there, but we don't know what they're called. We don't know if it's true, whatever. So I'm just going to go based off the Taino, which even the name Taino is also being argued that that's not what the name is. But the Taino were Arawaks that were all over the Caribbean, but they came from South America. They, the Tatainos grew corn. They had a lot of seafood. That's where the origins of barbecue come from. And then all of a sudden, the Europeans arrived. The Spanish arrived, but also some French, some Dutch. Along with them, they bring pigs. They bring enslaved Africans. With that, they bring rice. And now rice is like a huge part of Puerto Rican culture, but rice would not be huge without the enslaved Africans. There's documentation of some rice, but it never took off because the Tainos didn't know what to do with it because they weren't used to it. It wasn't until the enslaved Africans arrived that it really started booming.
0: So, let's let's talk about the food and how we build the food as we cook. You have what you call the flavor lexicon of Puerto Rico. There's achiote, alcaparado, pique, sazón, and adobo. Can you talk about um, each of these items and and what they bring to the overall flavor palette of the food?
1: Puerto Rican cuisine is not spicy even though we have pique so pique is just a hot pepper vinegar based hot sauce traditionally made with the skins of the pineapple not pineapple juice but just the skins and then with that pique you would add that to your food that can give it spice but it's not spicy what puerto rican food is though is savory with the addition of the tomato sauce it becomes you know more kind of like a deeper flavor, more floral, with the chote, which is very kind of like a musky scent. I don't really know another way to describe it. And then with the addition of olives and capers is the acidity, the brininess. So between the tomato sauce, the sofrito that has cilantro, culantro, which is cow, which is kind of hard to find. ajidulces, dulces, where sweet peppers tomatoes which is a controversial ingredient, garlic and onions. All these things you're building layers. So now you have all the things that make food addictive, really. Yeah, super umami bomb. Exactly. Um you use sofrito in
0: a in an unusual way, in a different way than a lot of people most people start a dish with it in the pan. You don't always do that. No. So at how all. how do you use it and why?
1: I always put it at the end. If I'm cooking for other Puerto Ricans, I will add some in the beginning (laughs) just to save face. But also, you know, I'm kind of like I've convinced myself that I'm going to add some in the beginning for my grandma. I'm going to add some at the end for me.
0: What does it give? What does it give for you flavor wise? I would imagine it's just like it gives you a big pop of green and freshness.
1: Exactly. I mean, it's like pesto. I don't really I've never understood the reason why people would Put sofrito in the beginning and cook all the flavor out of it, because it is almost exactly like pesto. When you have fresh basil and garlic, you have fresh cilantro, fresh garlic, fresh onions, and if you put it at the end, it really gives you that kind of wallop that you're looking for. You know where you can actually taste it. By putting it in the beginning, you don't really taste anything. I mean, there might be kind of like a lingering in the background, but because it's such an important ingredient and because it's such fresh ingredient, I'd rather have that forward,
0: and another really important building block of Puerto Rican food is the sazon, the the adobo and the sazon. Can you describe what they each are, how they're different, and how they're
1: used? Sazon has historically been mostly used as like a coloring agent, right? So the main ingredient is achote. Cachote is used in, you know, like cheese production to give it that yellow-orangey color, but it was also, like, something that, you know, came directly from the Tainos. They used it for flavor, color. They also used it to paint their faces and a whole host of other applications. So it wasn't always just about food. There are different types of blends, not only in the, um, the grocery stores, But every family has their own special blend, too. You know, like there are some sazones that has achote and saffron, achote with culantro, achote and tomatoes. There's a different set of blends. The adobo, which is primarily garlic forward, has garlic, cumin, oregano, and black pepper. That, too, can change depending on family. Some people put different things in it.
0: I mean, this this book of yours is called Diasporican. So a, a lot of the food is food that sort of morphs as people move around and intersect with larger community and, and different kind of groceries. Um, can you talk about the Puerto Rican lup um, that you included in the book from a time that you lived with the Lao family?
1: You know, I think that I found out by watching... My friend Lottie and her sister, Pawnee cook. I noticed a lot of similarities in certain ingredients and certain flavors to Puerto Rican food. Specifically, the ingredients that go into sofrito. So, you know, a lot of fresh herbs, a lot of cilantro, a lot of basil, a lot of tomatoes, a lot of shallots, which, you know, I just swapped for onions, a lot of garlic, and then, you know, some other things like lemongrass and stuff. But I was like kind of baffled to see so many ingredients that were similar going into the application that I would think like, hmm, I wonder if I can just do a shortcut and just use sofrito, which I already have. And since, you know, we already kind of use, we already have ground meat kind of in the Puerto Rican repertoire, instead of using ground beef, I wonder if I can use, you know, ground pork like Lottie and Pani do. Because I lived with them for so long and kind of like adapted it. My taste for super spicy foods and, you know, kind of more like fish sauce and badek and stuff like that. I just started using those in my everyday cooking already because I was already kind of accustomed to those type of flavors, which I love, by the way. There is no rhyme or reason. It just kind of like evolved organically based off of what I was eating, based off of what I saw, based off what I stole and just used it for myself.
0: Is there a dish that sort of represents something for you that you would love everyone who gets the book to make? Something that we might normally not have in our repertoire or think about?
1: It's always a sofrito. I push sofrito so hard because it's easy to make. It's easy to make, it's easy to store, and it can be used in everything. I don't cook Puerto Rican food every day, you know, so it doesn't have to be used in Puerto Rican food. The same with adobo and sazon. These things can be used in whatever you're already making. I put sofrito in curry. I put sofrito in stir fry. I put sofrito in beef stews. I put them in beans. Like, I'm kind of sad that Frank's Red Hot kind of stole, you know, already the term, I put that shit on everything because I already put that shit on everything.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The book is gorgeous, I have to say. And there's so much in there um, to explore. So thank you for that, Ileana. Thank you. That was food writer Ileana Mazonet discussing her first cookbook, Diasporican, which focuses on the cuisine of Puerto Rico around the world. We have a recipe for her Puerto Rican lab on our website. Go to com slash good food. Coming up. If you love Ethiopian food but don't know where to start when it comes to cooking it at home, we have the perfect recipe for you. Stay close.
2: Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car. Already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com
0: slash cars. Welcome back to Good Food. Lula de Mogus's parents were fond of saying, we might live in America, but once you come home, this is Ethiopia. Born in the Ethiopian capital of Addis Ababa and raised in the United States from the age of 12, she learned to cook from the women in her family. Authentic injera, the aromatic stews called watts, and all sorts of fabulous veggie dishes. As an adult, she became an avid home cook. But life gets busy for a mom working in the hospitality industry. So Lula revamped many of her favorite Ethiopian recipes so each one can be cooked in under an hour. She's compiled them in a gorgeous new book, Enabla, taken from the Amharic for Let's Eat. Hi Lula, how are you?
3: I'm doing great. How are you?
0: I'm good. So talk a little bit about the interplay of Ethiopian and Western dishes that were part of your mom and your auntie's repertoire.
3: So basically, um, we do have a huge Western influence, uh, specifically being the Italian influence, right? So historically, the Italians wanted to conquer Ethiopia. This is way, way before my time. And our emperor fought them off um, once they lost, a lot of the soldiers decided to kind of stay. And because of that, there's a huge integration of Italian cuisines, like the pastas and lasagnas and so forth are in our dishes, like our everyday repertoire and especially all our desserts have tendency to be Italian. Also, the fact that uh, both my parents and my aunts uh, did travel to Europe and the U.S., prior to us moving to the U.S. So they always like brought back some recipes and dishes and so forth that would always be integrated into our daily meals and or specifically when we had events, it would be like the Ethiopian dishes and then the Western dishes.
0: So every time I start to cook food, um, from a place in the world that I've never made before. I'd like mm-hmm. to read through a cookbook to see what like the move or the essential move is, the basic technique or techniques that you see over and over and over again. Um, what would they be for making most of the food in your book?
3: I mean, I think for it would be just having the staples, right? Always have onions, garlic. Uh, we do use jalapeno peppers. Serrano, if you like it to be even spicier. Uh, those are kind of like the same things. And the one staple thing that we tend to use over and over again is the berbere spice. So if you're going to start making any of these dishes, that's going to be one investment that you should definitely make. Because... It will be used and replicated in a lot of the dishes. Um, And then also as an alternative, because there are some people who don't like spice, any dish that we make that is mild version of it, we substitute it with turmeric. So just the regular turmeric that you can get at the grocery store would make the milder version of each dish.
0: Tell us about the Spice Blend berbere. What's in it?
3: So berberé, you know, I always say, I always tell people, don't try to make it yourself um, only because each household has their own different recipes. Um, It's a blend of between 24 to 28 spices. Um, It has, you know, a mixture of like cumin, star anise. Um, There's definitely the actual... Uh, chilies that it's dried up and ground. Um, And then just a lot of other spices that honestly, I haven't made personally, I'm better at purchasing it. Um, That's why I always recommend people just buying it. Um, And I'm sure one day I'll perfect it. But right now I don't.
0: So what is the recipe we should all start with and is easy to add to our weeknight dinner rotation?
3: the lentil dish is the, definitely a favorite and a go-to. Um, it's the, called the miss Wet. If you are more of like a meat person, um, I then I definitely recommend the tips, which is a beef stir fry. It's also another very quick dish to just kind of saute the dishes with some onions, garlic, and vegetable oil uh, or olive oil to your preference. And then again a lot of these dishes are supposed to be made the way you like them so they they will be saying like add four jalapeños and if you're spice sensitive. You can always use less. People who love spice, like myself, instead of jalapenos, I use serranos. So those are kind of like the two staple dishes. If it's kind of like too, I don't want to say scary, but like unfamiliar to start with those, then I would go with the gomen. The gomen is essentially collard greens. It's Ethiopian collard greens, right? So you can have them just plain the way they are, or you can also do them with beef, and what
0: if we want to try making a watt? What's what's a good um sort of introductory one to try to make?
3: Um I would probably go with the sigawet will be the which is the spicy beef stew. That would be the first one to go with just because it's very easy to start with and then it's also not very complicated. It asks for very minimal ingredients. Um, You're just basically getting some beef, some onions, garlic, ginger, and then of course the barber that goes in everything um, and water. And then once you've sauteed everything, you just kind of let it simmer down. So, but also again, if like it asks for 3 tablespoons of berbere. So if uh, you're kind of sensitive to that, you're more than welcome to use less um, or if you're just like nope, I don't I want it completely mild, then you can also substitute the berbere with turmeric, which is like a 1 tablespoon of turmeric.
0: But then you're giving up all those other spices, not just the chili. I encourage people I know. to I encourage people to just start with a couple teaspoons at least. Just
3: to kind of get a feel to it and like build, I know. But I do, I do have some people that are like. I mean, I have really good friends that find black pepper to be spicy. So like when you make like the blackened chicken and it's just black pepper, and then they're just like, "This is so spicy!" And I'm like, "Okay, so you're never eating Ethiopian food."
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So obviously, um, you didn't serve them the jalapenos stuffed with salad. Oh that, God. When I, I saw that picture, I just started laughing. I mean, I think a lot of people who who live here in Southern California will totally embrace these recipes, but that was absolutely. a jalapeno popper of a different kind.
3: Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's the thing. It's like, I wanted to make this, like the book to be very approachable so that it's not like, you know, there's some people who even say, oh, Indian. They're like, oh yeah, no, I don't do Indian because it's all spicy. It's like, no, there's stuff that's non-spicy. And the same thing with Ethiopian dishes, you know, automatically they think, oh, that's just too spicy. I don't do spice. And then completely just not try any of the entire cuisine. And then one fun thing that I know everyone makes fun of me for this, but it does work, I promise you. Is um, I do something called the Taco Bell test. And this is when every time I meet somebody who I know has never had Ethiopian food, I just simply ask them, okay, at one point or another, I know you've been to a Taco Bell. So when you go get whatever meal you get, which hot sauce do you pick? And so (laughs) it's like you're diagnosing (laughs) them exactly but based on like if they're like oh I get the mild or uh, I get the fire or I get the Diablo, and I'm like okay now I know where your palate lies and now I know what you can essentially the level of spice that you can handle and that's uh, based on that is how I introduce them on the dish and slowly build on it like I might just make like something mild very mild um, and then put the you know, the stuffed jalapenos on the side and say, you don't have to eat the whole thing. Just take one bite, you know, and just kind of like slowly introduce them. And I know every, every time I tell people this, they're just like, what? What's, what does Taco Bell have to do with Ethiopian food? And I'm like, no, I'm just trying to figure out something that everyone has had and everyone knows what it tastes like to gauge how spicy things that they can take. I think it's genius, actually. <laughs> Thank you.
0: It was so much fun talking to you and the book is so beautiful. Thank you so much, Lula.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: That was Lula de Mogus, author of Enebla, Recipes from an Ethiopian Kitchen. You'll find a recipe for her gomen wat, the collard green stew she mentioned on our website. And if you live in LA and want to know where to find the best injera and Ethiopian ingredients in town, we have Lula de's recommendations there too. It's all at slash good food. I've lived in mid city LA for 30 plus years, and I've been eating in the Ethiopian restaurants that line Fairfax Boulevard for as long as I can remember. But I never knew the history of this neighborhood. Independent producer and LA native Shaka Tufari recently explored the area's roots for a three-part series called Exploring Africa in LA, A Little Ethiopia Story. In this excerpt, he introduces us to Fikra Gibrimarium, known locally as Mr. Fikra. He owns Rosalind's, the city's first Ethiopian restaurant on Fairfax Avenue.
4: After settling in LA's Koreatown neighborhood, Mr. Fikra was working as a real estate agent when he first learned of Rosalind's restaurant. It's by accident, actually. Rosalind's at that
5: time used to be located on La Senega Boulevard. It was owned by a Liberian woman. She was a nurse at UCLA. Her husband was a teacher with the LA School District. And they opened their first West African cuisine
4: on La Senega Boulevard around 1975-76. But in the 1980s, the Liberian couple was ready to retire and wanted to sell the place. So they contracted Mr. Fikra to help close the deal. I had
5: a buyer for a restaurant. So we went to look this restaurant. It was a beautiful, decorated, just like as if you are in West Africa. But the deal didn't go through. But
4: since I liked the place, I decided to buy it myself. Talk about seeing an opportunity. That same year, he decided to move the now Ethiopian restaurant over to its current location, on Fairfax Avenue. When I came here in 1988, pretty much
5: before that, it was 100% Jewish business. In the early 80s, uh, most of those Jewish business owners, they got retired and the children moved back to the valley. So it was kind of declining. It wasn't
4: really a very nice block. There were roughly 30,000 Ethiopian residents in L.A. when Mr. Fikra bought Roslyn's. Equipped with a liquor and entertainment license, Roslyn's quickly became the spot for East Africans looking for that little piece of home.
5: So by the 90s, we used to bring a lot of singers from
4: Washington, D.C., from Ethiopia, to entertain this place. So you had a little concert hall in here. Oh, yeah. To my surprise, Mr. Fikra owned the Rastafarian store Mama and I used to visit back in the 90s. It was right next door to Roslyn. That, the Rastafarian store that you were talking about, Next door. He was my tenant.
5: His name is Carl, Jamaican guy. He had the Rastafarian stores.
4: But I was even more inspired when I learned that Mr. Fikra encouraged his friends and colleagues to also set up shop right here in LA. By the time, sometimes in the 90s, I invited a lot of Ethiopians to come open a business in exchange. Soon, Little Addis, as it was commonly referred to back then, included other Habesha restaurants grocery stores, salon, and a travel agency. The LA Times even dubbed him the Godfather of Little Ethiopia. Godfather Love, if you ask me. Over time the Ethiopian community on Fairfax stretched even further south to Pico Boulevard.
6: So we we came with an idea. We said, you know what? Ethiopians are live here a lot north, east,
4: west, and south. This is a kind of a center for the community. That's Mr. Bedhanu Asfa. He came to L.A. in 1981 and studied computer science at Trade Tech. In 2000, he and his brother Mr. Getahun Asfa bought the legendary restaurant Mesob. The brothers and the other Ethiopian entrepreneurs in the area had been regularly gathering with Mr. Fikra at Roslyn's, discussing what the future could look like for Ethiopians in L.A.
6: We decided to become advocacy group. So giving people a voice and also to make involved Ethiopians in local and civic businesses and everything.
4: Two years later, Little Ethiopia in L.A. becomes the first enclave in U.S. history named after an African nation. Anywhere in the world. My bad. It's the first neighborhood in the world named after an African nation. Mr. Bedhanu made sure that I knew that. Little Ethiopia in D.C. was the second in 2004. Since then... There have been no others
6: this is one of the things that adds to los angeles culture something new brings really very interesting is like you see you can go mexican rivera you can go uh, thai town and little tokyo so on so this is uh, represent pretty much the whole africa in africa's culture <laughs>
0: That was an excerpt from Shaka Tafari's three-part series Exploring Africa in LA, a Little Ethiopia story. You can hear the entire series at kcrw.com slash littleethiopia. Now that it's November, it's time to get serious about Thanksgiving. Need a new pie idea, tips for gluten-free stuffing, or maybe you're finally ready to ditch the big bird and need a new centerpiece. For this year's Good Food Thanksgiving episode, I'll be joined by my friend and colleague, Andy Baragani, to answer all of your Thanksgiving questions. Talk to us. What do you want to know? Whether it's cocktails, sides, or even table etiquette, we are here to help. So send us an email at goodfood at or message us on Instagram. Our DMs are open. Follow us at KCRW Good food and ask away. Coming up. I don't like to pick favorites, but there is something about Nigella Lawson. She brings her infinite kitchen wisdom to good food in one minute right here on KCRW. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. I've had the good fortune of interviewing Britain's domestic goddess, Nigella Lawson, several times over the past couple of decades. The emotional intelligence she brings to the kitchen is a gift to us all. And then there's her writing. It's swoon-worthy, and I'm not generally a swooner. So it's with great joy and anticipation that I welcome her back to Good Food.
7: Hi, Nigella. Hello, that is a lovely introduction, thank you. I've always enjoyed talking to you, and there's so much to talk about when one talks about food. So much.
0: To prepare for this conversation, as well as the the two that we're going to be having live um, in Santa Barbara and in Irvine over the next few weeks, I decided to go back and reread your first book, and the first thing that struck me is the title, How to Eat, Not How to Cook. But how to eat, and for some reason, I find it something so useful to think about now. What can you tell us about that choice of title or focus?
7: Well, actually, it was my late husband's idea. He say, he had said to me, "You really should, you know, as a journalist at the time, and not a food journalist, but," and he said, "You really should write a book about food and how it works and what you think about it because you're very confident." in your responses to up food. And he didn't mean so much that I was the most confident person in the kitchen, but that I always had quite emphatic beliefs or uh, understanding about, I think this goes with that, or no, this has been done. I don't, why, why have they done that? Because I had been a, actually a restaurant critic briefly. And he said, you should call it How to Eat. And it was a good way to go into it, even though I said that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. And of course, I don't want to do a food book. It seemed an odd thing, but I think it's a very good way to go into it because how everyone really interacts with food is through the eating. It's a language that speaks to those who perhaps consider themselves cautious in the kitchen and don't regard themselves as cooks. But I I think that really it was about saying you don't have to apologize for being a home cook.
0: The title of this new book is Cook, Eat, Repeat, which could signal the drudgery of feeding ourselves, but repetition is also at the heart of comfort, don't you think?
7: Yes, I do. You know, it's very interesting. It sounds, I mean, I actually did write this book in lockdown, in the very long lockdown we had in the UK, a four-month lockdown in March 2020. However, with a title like that, you would think it had been conceived during COVID, but it was a pre-pandemic project. But I felt that that repetition and the notion of that that focus on, on what you were cooking each day and the structure of cooking and then eating kept a lot of people together, ritual, and repetition have always been the markers of human society. You famously talk about the deliciousness yet
0: unphotogenic quality of brown food, which I feel makes a lot of appearances this time of year um, as we're in falling and go into the cooler months. There's a dish I was looking at in your Christmas chapter that's the beef cheeks with chestnuts port. could you speak yes. a bit
7: about that well yes I feel that there's something about chestnuts that always makes me feel it could be uh, you know I could just have turned away from a Dickensian side street where people are roasting chestnuts and then putting them in brown paper bags and you buy the uh, buy a bag of warm chestnuts holding it to keep your hands warm And, you know, as a child, although I promise you Dickens was no longer alive, that was quite commonplace in winter in London at any rate. And I love a stew, and yet I wanted to make a stew that felt luscious, that felt almost instantly you felt the flickering log fire and, you know, the sense that you were you know, covered in rather wonderful claret-coloured velvet. And that's indeed what the port made me think of, and the chestnuts. So it's quite a, there's a quite traditional wintry foods. But, of course, um, beef cheeks that I would love to be able to say, and this used to be the case until very recently, they were cheaper cuts of meat. You had to go to a butcher, but, you know, it's fibrous, it's tough, and yet, Cook it for a long time and it becomes almost like you cannot tell whether it is solid or part of the the port and the stock in the stew there's something that 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 is so particularly wonderful about it of course in very recent years suddenly these have all become hip there aren't that many butchers and so those cuts aren't that affordable anymore which is a great pity but they certainly are worth getting because there's you know the idea that you would I mean they're not as expensive as fillet steak and a and fillet steak it would make me weep to have that rather than that intense flavor and richness that you get in cuts like beef cheeks. So I suppose it's just the sort of stew I do if I have people around. You know, I, I'm a great believer in cooking ahead. It makes me feel very much safer and securer when I know that there's food to be eaten later.
0: When I think about this time of year strangely enough I also think about sandwiches because there's always leftovers that are really great oh, building it's blocks it's the
7: most important thing and I wrote about that a bit in um in terms of Christmas cuz it's what we do we don't have thanksgiving but we have the turkey the roast potatoes you know all the vegetables and the cranberry sauce and so forth so there are similarities and yes I couldn't agree with you more the sandwiches are that are uh, when either Thanksgiving or the Christmas feast really comes into its own, really. It lives again and so powerfully and it is a time for condiments as well. And I enjoy that.
0: What are some of your favorite condiments these days?
7: There are so many. I am very keen. If not, I, I would make me anxious to travel without it just very basic English mustard, which is hot mustard that we have. It's you know the British wasabi, and I adore that. In 1986, I have to tell you, I went to a friend's house for Christmas, and there was no English mustard there, and it was the most terrible thing. Obviously, in terms, of, it, it, I had lots to worry about that year. It was. It was a difficult time. My mother had died recently, not that recently, but, you know, a mother's death is always recent. And so it was anyway a difficult time. And then no English mustard, I really felt at a loss. And that was 1986. And it still makes me slightly hyperventilate when I think about it. So English mustard for sure. And by the way, that English mustard is wonderful. In a way, used a bit like wasabi and stirred into soy sauce for as a dressing. I mean, over some leftover carrots, for example, heavenly. May I ask you what brand of hot mustard you you prefer? Coleman's. As far as I'm concerned, it has to be Coleman's. That's just like the most basic brand. Well, Nigella,
0: I thank you so much for spending the time with us. And I look so forward to our conversations that we'll be having in the coming week. Well, So
7: do I. I feel we could have gone on for the rest of the day, frankly.
0: That's Nigella Lawson. She's on book tour discussing Cook, Eat, Repeat. I'll be in conversation with her next Saturday, November 12th, at the Granada Theater in Santa Barbara, and again at the Barclay Theater in Irvine on November 26th. Please join us. For more information, go to our website, com slash goodfood. A British rocker lands in L.A. When he discovers there are no pubs, he decides to open one himself. It was 40 years ago when bassist Kim Gardner opened The Cat and Fiddle with his then very pregnant wife, Paula. It became an institution, serving fish and chips, bangers and mash, and lots and lots of pints. Kim passed away in 2001, but Paula and their daughter, Ashley, keep his legacy alive in the restaurant's newest location, on Highland and Melrose. The Cat and Fiddle is the subject of this week's In the Weeds. Hi, this is Paula
8: Gardner, and my family owns the Cat and Fiddle that was initiated by my husband, Kim Gardner, 40 years ago. In 1982, I was pregnant with my daughters, twins, Ashley and Camille, and my husband was not on the road at the time. So I had friends from Ibiza and from Paris who had a lovely little cafe in Laurel Canyon called the Pasta Cafe. And they made their own pasta and it was really, really a lot of fun. But they felt that they needed to move back to Europe and they asked my husband and I, well, do you know anybody that would like to buy our and wine license and the lease? I thought to myself, no. But my husband didn't feel the same way. He said, sure, we'll buy it. And I thought, oh my goodness, what is he talking about? We got, we ended up getting partners with uh, Cassie Yates and her husband, Steve. And Steve was a bass player, Steve Humphreys, And Cassie was a, a renowned actress at the time. And the rest is history. People came to the cat and fiddle to have a pint in Laurel Canyon and and a nice little meal. And on the menu, I think we had a salad, we had a plowman's lunch, we had bangers and mash, and we had, of course, fish and chips, sausage rolls, sherry trifle. It was very small, the menu, Thank goodness, because I had to cook one day. I was very flustered about the whole thing. But anyway, um, not only did they want to stop and have a good meal and a pint or a Coke or whatever, but they came to see my husband and they came to see Cassie, you know, whenever she was there, when she wasn't working. My husband was um, very well known in the British rock circuit. He grew up with Ronnie Wood. They were neighbors. Ronnie's with currently with the Stones has been for many years. They were neighbors. They used to draw together. They grew up together. They were in your traditional Volkswagen bus touring Germany and and France and Belgium and all those wonderful and of course England, Scotland, and Wales and. They, grew, like I said, grew up together, not only Woody and Kim, but also Rod Stewart, George Harrison, Jeff Beck, all of the folks that were in the very beginnings of the British invasion, so to speak. So that's kind of how we got started and continued on to Sunset.
9: Hi, this is Ashley Gardner, and I am partnered with my mother, Paula Gardner, in our family business, The Cat and Fiddle. As a child, my parents did a lot of entertaining at our house. And of course, every year we'd go to England, we would hang out with Ronnie Wood and their kids, and to me, it was very normal. Um, I remember one, one day, on my way to school, and Christopher Lloyd was filming Adam's family, and I went to high school, and I said, "Well." This morning I woke up and went to school and Uncle Fester was in my living room and that was a strange experience for me. But my earliest memories, even before I was working at the Cat and Fiddle, we went to grammar school across the street. I have a twin sister and an older sister. So every day after school, we would walk across the street after school to the Cat and Fiddle and we'd always have little tasks like cutting the specials for the hostess or helping the servers punch in orders. And fast-forwarding, when I could legally work at the restaurant, I was 16 years old, and my first job was a hostess. And that job, as a 16-year-old, working busy Friday, Saturday nights, because of course I was at school during the week, um, was very difficult, because the way the business was set up, there was a patio as you walk in, and people would choose the table. They would choose as they walk in. They said, I want to sit at that table. And working with my dad, I remember telling him, Dad, you know, this person, I wanted to seat them on table 30, but they wanted to sit at 310, and I'm not sure what to do. And dad would always help handle the situation until I could become a little more comfortable to handle it myself.
8: Kim's personality, he was possibly the funniest person that I ever met. And uh, his friends were pretty funny too. We did a lot of laughing in those days. Unfortunately, we still do laugh a lot. It's just a lot different 40 years later.
9: He had a toy box in the office that he would occasionally bring out. And it'd be all kinds of different tricks. Of course, he'd you know, it'd have your typical, choose a piece of gum, and it would be trick gum. Or he'd have, uh, you know, play spiders in the box and he'd put one on the table and the customers would scream and think that there was a spider inside their food and he'd come by and pop it in his mouth and be like, what spider? I don't know what you're talking about.
8: And of course he had another pack of gum that you could choose from that would burn your mouth to where you could barely speak. And, you know, the old shake the hand trick, where you get a little shock if you shake somebody's hand. He had these glasses on, then he put these round, circular frame glasses on, and when you looked at him, it looked like his eyes were a kaleidoscope. That was pretty shocking for a lot of people that never met him for the first time. (laughs) I've seen um, the cat and fiddle go through a lot of different changes. Uh, it's called 40 years. You know like people that were in their 30s or their 20s 40 years ago are now in their 60s and 70s. So I think that's a pretty big change and the neighborhood that we moved to on Highland and Melrose has a lot of families and not only kids can come here but Dogs. If you have a cat you want to bring out, a bird or whatever? So welcome. Kids are welcome. Any sort of person is welcome here. And that is the whole deal that a pub is about. So I think the changes that we have gone through have been just with the changes with what everybody else has
0: gone through. That was Paula Gardner and her daughter, Ashley Gardner. Their family has been running the cat and fiddle for 40 years. The pub and restaurant is now in its third location on Highland and Melrose. When we return, first came Bestia, then came Bavel, and now husband and wife team Ori Menashe and Genevieve Gerges have expanded their empire to include the much anticipated Safis in East Hollywood. Could it possibly live up to the hype? The LA Times restaurant critic weighs in when Good Food continues. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. First, they hit a home run with Bestia, a meaty Italianish restaurant in the arts district. Then they outdid themselves with Bavel, a Middle Eastern restaurant less than a mile away. Now, restaurateurs Ori Menashe and Genevieve Gerges have returned with Safi's, a kebab and small plate spot in East Hollywood. Bill Addison, the restaurant critic for the Los Angeles Times, has a few thoughts. Hi, Bill. Hi, Evan. So Safi's is a restaurant that's run by Ori Menashe and Genevieve Gerges, who are a couple. What's the division of responsibilities? Similar to
2: their first two restaurants, Manasha generally takes charge of the line, the savory menu. He and his core of chefs all wear colorful headbands. That's Manasha's signature look. And Gergis is the pastry chef. And here that includes a small daytime bakery. My favorite things there so far are the ham and cheese biscuits.
0: Mm, wonderful. It's a great <laughs> opportunity for Genevieve to kind of stretch out a bit. Describe Safi's for us. What does it look like, both inside and out? And how does it fit in with that East Hollywood neighborhood? Yeah, it's an
2: art deco space, saturated in reds and earth tones that bring to mind a Moroccan color palette, for me anyway. And the restaurant sits across from the Church of Scientology's big blue building. It's a smaller room than their first two restaurants, though boomingly loud like the others. And uh, there's a recently installed awning that stretches nearly to the curb and makes for significant and quieter outside seating.
0: Oh, that's awesome. So (laughs) let's get to the food. Um, First things first, I have to ask about the hummus. He's famous for it. Has he done anything new or different with the hummus at Safi's, especially compared to the one at Bavel? Yeah, I... Eat my share of hummus, and
2: I've never had better in a Los Angeles restaurant than Menasha's. It's incredibly light and creamy, but still has body, still has density. At at Safi's, they're making two, one dolloped with long-simmered fava beans that are brightened with lemon and serranos and served with a jammy, soft-boiled egg sprinkled with cumin on the side, The one that I think about daily is the hummus tahini. Um, So it's less garlicky and more prominent with the sesame flavor. It's garnished with green zug, the Yemeni hot sauce, and the clincher for me, super fresh, really buttery pine nuts. They get them from a small Lebanese importer in Los Angeles named Oliavanti. It's it's where they uh, they also get the olive oil they use for the hummus, too. If you've ever had Lebanese pine nuts, they're very different from the short, squat ones, often from China or other farther regions of Asia. These pine nuts are special.
0: Ooh, I'm going to have to take a look because I spend a fortune getting them from Italy.
2: It's, I would say they're similar of quality. And it's, you know, I would rather eat six of those pine nuts than 40 of the other kinds.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the menu is anchored by kebabs. Tell us about them. Are there a ton of different kinds or do they like? Zero in each day on one or two? The menu is pretty set, and they've got about
2: a half dozen variations down. Pork, chicken, beef, a couple kinds of lamb, and they all have different intricate spicing. I'd say my favorite is a lamb kebab that um, is threaded with sweet and spicy peppers, but also dry mint and marjoram, which is a really cool combination that's like bright and pungent at once, and it just tastes just right with the lamb.
0: Mm. And and
2: what are the kebabs served with? They come with an herbed tahini salad that <laughs> reminds me in its pleasant mulchiness, almost like homemade green goddess dressing. There's also amba, the mango pickle drizzled over top, and chili crisp, which is a fun and very of the moment Los Angeles condiment. We runneth over with Chili Crisp, and I'm not complaining.
0: (laughs) No, no, no. I don't think any of us are. (laughs) So let's talk about the shawarma. As you point out in your review, it's not cheap, $26. Is it uh, worth the price? It is to me in the same way that
2: any chef kind of taking any dish from a tradition and putting a mark on it that makes it something that tastes both of itself and entirely new, if that makes sense. So when you walk into the restaurant, you can't miss the vertical spit in the open kitchen and you'll see chefs shaving off the stacks of beef and lamb. I love it as a sandwich wrapped in really thin lafa bread with tahini and uh, red achica, which is a mildly spicy, like Georgian bell pepper jam and tomatoes and sumac onions. It's, yes, it's phenomenal.
0: Yeah, it sounds really good. In your review, you say the place roars with ambition. What do you mean? I know the
2: couple wanted something casual, right? Something that just sort of inserted itself into the neighborhood and just became kind of more a part of daily life. But this restaurant is not that. It's a sensation. It's one of the absolute most interesting and best new restaurants to open in Los Angeles this year. The crowds have shown up in throngs. If you want a reservation, you have to plan well ahead of time, I suggest scoring a seat at the bar if you want to try and slide in last minute, but it's just as ambitious in its own ways as the first two restaurants they created.
0: Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you, Evan. That was LA Times restaurant critic, Bill Addison, sharing his thoughts on Safi's, the newest restaurant from Ori Minache and Genevieve Gerges. You'll find it on Fountain Avenue between Normandy and Vermont in East Hollywood. Head to our website for a link to Bill's review, kcarrw.com slash goodfood. When I heard the news that New York food critic Gail Green passed away this week, it had me reflecting on how much dining out and the ways we document it have changed in the last 50 years. In an obituary in the L.A. Times, Bill Addison described Greene as one of the masterminds of modern restaurant criticism. In her decades reviewing restaurants for New York Magazine, she reinvented the genre with her unapologetically sensual take on food and willingness to make herself a character in her stories. As Addison writes, she was a live-out-loud force whose path, even as she blazed it, vanished behind her. I interviewed Gail in 2006 after the publication of her memoir, Insatiable, Tales from a Life of Delicious Excess, and I marveled at her ability to insert such vivacious opinions in her writing at such a young age.
10: First of all, New York Magazine was so hot. It had just started in 1968. Everybody who counted in the media or in the what I call Toot New York set, was reading it. And so it was a great spotlight for me. And secondly, there's nothing like having the last word. So you go into a little, to a haute French restaurant, which is really haughty and full of snobbism, and you look like Miss Nobody from nowhere, because they can tell by your shoes that you're Miss Nobody. And you sit down and they abuse you consistently. What a fabulous story. So for the reader, (laughs) I was getting revenge. You know, they, they got their revenge through me. So give us a little snapshot of what the New York
0: restaurant scene was like when you first started, because it was a world that many of us have never seen
10: I mean these these old line haute cuisine restaurants. Well, it's true. 1968, uh, there were maybe three or four fishes that you would find in a restaurant. The prefix lunch at the most fancy French restaurant was 7.95, and everyone was upset about paying 50 cents extra for coffee. Um, the, there were no American chefs. The greatest American restaurant in town, the Four Seasons, had a Swiss chef. The chefs at the Coach House, another great American restaurant, were totally unknown, unseen in the kitchen. A Greek owned it. Um, There were no no fresh greens. There was no fresh herbs. Parsley was the fresh herb, (laughs) only choice you had. The kiwi didn't exist. Uh, Nouvelle cuisine had not been heard of. And people were not that interested, basically. The upper-class idea of dinner was a overcooked lamb chop and rice pudding. And don't make a fuss about it because it's just not nice. It's not proper.
0: The part that fascinates me is that in these restaurants, which we now think of as these old haute cuisine restaurants, who you were and where you, you sat seemed to be almost more important than the food. Whereas now, even in the most celebrated of New York restaurants, if you call in advance and you make a reservation and you pay your money—
10: you're treated pretty well. The haughtiness disappeared with a few re- serious recessions and also with the emergence of American chefs and the importance of great regional Italian cooking done by American chefs. The poor old-fashioned French uh, snobbism definitely died out. But there is still a very two-level s- system. One is I can get a table at eight thirty two two days before. You have to call a month ahead, and you're lucky if you can get six or 10. For instance, at restaurants that don't take reservations like Pastis, but certain people walk in and are immediately led to a table, and I wonder why the- those waiting don't kill them. <laughs>
0: That was my interview with famed food writer and critic Gail Green in 2006. She passed away this week at the age of 88. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, Alina Shatkin, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and PJ Shahamat. And special thanks to Chrissy Van Meter, Laura Condorajan, and Gary Masiha. Don't forget to send us your Thanksgiving questions. Email us at goodfood at kcrw.com or send us a DM. We're on Instagram at kcrwgoodfood. And speaking of Thanksgiving, did you know that we have an incredible archive of Thanksgiving recipes on our website? We've got recipes for barbecue turkey, dry brine turkey. One year we even interviewed a Southern cook who cooks her turkey in a wine-soaked pillowcase. You can check it out at kcrw.com slash thanksgiving, whether you're looking for something specific or just browsing for information. And remember, there are even more recipes and ideas at kcrw.com slash goodfood. I'm Evan Kleiman, and of course I'll meet you back here next week for a new episode of Good Food.